Ministries and uh, Lifeway Ministries together did a, a survey, I believe uh, Mark might have even mentioned it last week as well, and uh, some of the results of that survey uh, both confirm concerns but also uh, raise concerns as well in terms of uh, beliefs of, of people in our world and uh, in the United States. And one of the things that it did, as one article put it, is that it confirmed America's greatest heresy. And that, that heresy doesn't have to do with the Trinity. It doesn't have to do with the Bible or the doctrine of the church. But it has to do with the ability of man in terms of his own salvation, which goes back to that great debate that has gone on down through the centuries in terms of uh, uh, who, who contributes what to salvation. And I just want to I, I summarize what it said. I'm not going to give you percentages or or whatever, uh, you can look it up yourself if you're interested. But basically, uh, from the survey, uh, most agreed that though we sin a little, we're, by nature we're good. And then further, that uh, we can do good and God rewards our good deeds by loving us. And then that we have the ability to turn to God on our own initiative and salvation involves us taking the initiative that God then responds to. Now, some of you may, may say, well, that, none of that sounds that bad to me, and I understand. But here's what we need to know about that. Those four conclusions are absolutely contrary to the book of Ephesians. And they are absolutely contrary to the Scripture as a whole. And so that, that should give us great warning that, that there's real misunderstanding when it comes to human merit and God's role in our salvation. The fact remains that ultimately, biblical teaching on works and merit versus grace is precisely what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. Every other world religion out there basically says it's about what you have to do to try to get to God. And Christianity is exactly the opposite of that. It's what He did to come to us and to provide for relationship. And that's what our passage today is about. Now you can see that in a few minutes we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And the Supper itself is a reminder of all of the truths of the gospel. You can, you can see them in the Supper. 
They are represented there. But before we take of the supper, every, every month when we, we do it, I read from 1 Corinthians 11, and one of the verses that I read is verse 27. I'll read again later, but it is this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That phrase, in an unworthy manner. So here's the question. What does that mean? Does it mean that we've got to get our life together before we dare come to the table? Or does it mean that we come to the table in spite of the fact that our life is not together? If there is danger in partaking in an unworthy manner, what is a worthy manner? Is there such thing? I read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, the last part of the first section, beginning with verse 8, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Father, will you teach us today? You spoke these words by your Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. They are inspired. They are your words. And they were your words for the believers in Ephesus and they are your words for us today. And so, Lord, will you enable us to hear your words, to respond to your word. Prepare us today, Lord. Open our hearts to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I, I made the statement uh, a few minutes ago that the conclusions of that survey, uh, and, and the conclusions of the survey were just a summary of what people were saying. It wasn't that that was the view of those who were doing the survey. But that uh, the, the, those conclusions, those four things were absolutely contrary to uh, what is taught in Ephesians. What we have been through so far in the first chapter and uh, the first seven verses 
of uh, the second chapter, and then specifically where we are today. And so let's understand, because it began with the big picture of what God had done from all eternity. That's where he began to encourage these people who were in a minority, in a difficult situation, uh, stressed under their uh, faith, trying to stand for God. What do they need to hear? They need to hear, it's about what God has done for you. You are his beloved. That's what they heard. And then we come to chapter 2. And in that chapter, it continues to nail down the argument that it is about what God has done and not what, what we have done. And by the way, if you really believe this, it will, just, it will absolutely drive you to worship because that's the only response. It's the only possible response. So, we, we see that God is the source of our faith, and it is by grace. Uh, let's look at some aspects of that. First of all, it's, it's not self-generated, verse uh, 8. And by the way, if it was self-generated, that would be merit, wouldn't it? That would be works. If it was something that I conjure up, that I can, you know, some people can, can contribute and others can't, then all of a sudden it becomes merit or it becomes uh, salvation by works. But here's what the Scripture says instead of that, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this, not, is, this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not your own doing. Now, last week, (coughs) Mark Rattray spoke on the first part of Ephesians. Ephesians 2 begins with this and then says it every which way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. In that, we, we cannot generate our own life. You, you can't physically, you cannot spiritually. Basically, as one described it, you are, you're dead, you are in the bottom of the ocean, your lungs are filled with water, and then God comes and he pulls you out and he gives you life. That's how hopeless it is. That's how dead we are if we are without Christ. Not only is it not self-generated, it's a gift. How do we get it? Well, it is gifted to us. Verse 8, the last part, again, it is the gift of God. Now, what happens when you get a gift? Well, there are are many ways people get gifts and a lot of reactions and so on. Let me tell you 
how it, it should be and how it should not be. If, if there is a gift, it's just not the same if you, you plead and cajole and talk somebody into offering that gift to you. But instead, if the gift, maybe a gift you didn't even understand how much you needed or wanted, if a gift is given to you, it is offered you. And what do we do at the end of, end of our service? I, I, I sometimes remind us that it's like a, a child, in the posture of a child, reaching out to receive a gift or blessing from his father, okay? So that's what, that's what this is. That's why Paul is saying this. That's why God wanted people to understand that instead of going and getting it, we receive it. And really, when it comes to salvation, that's, that's the best way to talk about it. That's probably the most accurate way for us to talk about it, when I received Christ. Sometimes we emphasize when I prayed to receive Christ, which, you know, again, you know, <laughs> yeah, I prayed. I walked the aisle. I did this. I, you know, instead, I received a gift. And here's the other thing to think about in terms of understanding a gift. How insulting would it be if you were given a gift that was designed just for you and then you said, okay, what do I owe you on that? Let me, let me, let me pay you for that. Do you see how repulsive that, that would be if you, if you were the giver of the gift? And yet, that's precisely what happens when God says it is a free gift. It's not from you, it's from me. And we act like we have to pay him back for what he's done. We can't pay him back. Don't insult him by implying that you can, that you'll now be good enough. You've missed the point if you believe that's the case. And then further, <coughs> excuse me, it's not earned or deserved. Verse 9 not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, this, this speaks to chapter 1. It speaks to the nature of election and predestination. If we are indeed spiritually dead, if there's no way to earn God's favor, if our works are never enough, if faith must be a gift from God then it supports what Paul said earlier that we were and we had to be chosen by him before the foundation of the world. And it was in love. See, that's how this fits together. So Paul continues to nail the argument that it's all about God in focusing uh, on uh, not only that we're saved by grace, but we must live every day by grace. Because 
Not only is God the source of our salvation, the source of the gift, God is the source of our works. Look at verse um, 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's what happens. Boasting is ruled out. Verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, we've talked about how, how some would like to say that God didn't foreordain salvation, but simply looked ahead and saw who would believe. The problem with that, the real problem with that, is the first part of Ephesians 2. That if, if God didn't intervene beforehand, if he wasn't the first one, then he would have looked ahead and saw that no one would have faith. So, again, it's contrary to the teaching of the Word of God. He chose us. But if he chose me because of my faith, then I can pat myself on, my, on the back. I can boast. Well, of course he chose me. He knew I would have faith. Of course he chose me. He knew I would be a good servant of his. You see who then begets, gets the glory? Thank Dale for that. Instead of God getting all of the worship that he deserves. He rules out our boasting. And then he speaks to our purpose. We were designed to bring him glory. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Michael, Michael Horton writes, uh, God is not a supporting actor in our, li our life movie. We exist for his purposes, not the other way around. See, isn't that the problem? Sometimes we think God's out there like our, our butler or you know, to, and, and he's there just to meet my needs. But it's the other way around. He created us for a purpose, in love, and not the other way around. And even obedience is a response to him. We're his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It wasn't that we conjured it up. It wasn't that we were so good, but God even prepared that. Now, here's, here's one of the things that I believe evangelicals sometimes struggle with. There, there's very little argument when it comes to the fact that we are uh, saved by grace through faith. Most in Bible-believing churches agree with that, they preach it faithfully. But then here's where the problem sometimes comes in. We know we're saved by grace, but then the rest of our lives we act like 
we keep our salvation by works. You see, that's a problem. If it depends on uh, my works to keep my salvation, I will not be saved in the end. It was the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And not only that, that saved that saved his people from their sins, but saved them to good works as a response to what he had done. There's nothing you can do to make you love him more. No works that you can do to cause God if you're one of his children, to love you any more than he already does. But here's the, here's the really, really wonderful encouragement. When you're his child, nothing you do will make him love you less. His love upon you is unconditional. It is infinite. Jerry Bridges in The Discipline of Grace which is my favorite book, <laughs> next to the Bible. <laughs> our worst days, he said, our worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Elsewhere, he, he says, we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Not that you get saved every day. But every day, understand that my whole life, not just my salvation, but my whole life depends upon walking in faith by his grace, by his undeserved favor that he has poured out upon me. So who's going to partake in a worthy manner? Let me give you the context for that statement. Paul said, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's, that's quoting what, what Jesus said to his disciples. But then Paul, Paul brings this in. He says there is a way to come to the table. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. You see, if that's true, it, it's such a gracious warning. It is so gracious. Because he doesn't want people eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. So he says, let a, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Discerning the body, knowing Christ. So what does it mean to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? 
I want to give you three things. If you think you're worthy, then you're not. If you think you've earned a seat at this table, then you don't get it. The table reminds us that we only approach the Father through Christ. Secondly, if there's sin in your life that you're not ready to give up and you come to the table anyway, then you're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. You're making a mockery of what Jesus has done. Because basically you're saying, I want this, but I want my sin more. I want his grace, but I love my sin more than him right now. So don't do that. This table, though, is for those who repent. And maybe even it's here and now before the elements come to you where, where you say, I have loved my sin more than him, but not now. I want to turn from it toward him. That's repentance. Turning from sin and towards him. And this table is for those who are repenting. And all of us need to repent and come with repentant hearts. Thirdly, if you're trusting in Christ alone for eternal life, even if you struggle with doubts, even if you feel distant from God, even if you feel weak in your faith, come to the table for strength. Think of it in this way. The Lord's Supper is using the image of our need for physical nourishment, for food and drink. Now, clearly, it's representative. The size of the bread, the size of the cup would not physically nourish us, but it's representative of a a nourishment and a spiritual nourishment. So imagine if you were starving and you were weak and you were unable to stand, and someone came to you and offered to you food and drink, offered to you nourishment, not because you were in such good shape, but because you needed it so badly, what would you do? You would eat and drink. And that's what this table is for. For those who know of their spiritual need, the Lord's Supper is a time to give thanks that God feeds the helpless and draws near to those who are hungry. Let's bow together.
So, Father, any worthiness is clearly because of the worthiness of Christ. And as we trust in him alone for our eternal life, you have told us there is union with Christ and he has earned a seat at this table. So we come in his name. Thank you. Amen.